If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of um, Philippians, in chapter 3. And as you do, let me ask you a question. When you think of the Christian religion, what is the most central and meaningful element of it? What is it that matters most in it and most to you? What excites you about Christianity? And there are lots of ways you could answer that question, aren't there? There are some who are excited by the doctrine, the doctrinal truth, the being of God, that He's a most pure spirit, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and how He's planned redemption for this world and has and rules the world in His providence and has sent forth His prophetic word that is inspired and inerrant, the breath of God into this world to teach us truth and the great doctrines of justification by faith alone and sanctification and so forth, all these great doctrines and eternal life and the kingdom of God and the covenant that gives us such hope for our children and these great ideas that are so important and so central and we, we, we love them and cherish them. And for some, they, they love the intellectual rigor of the doctrinal element of Christianity and then for other men, I know it's the ethic of Christianity. I remember interviewing a man, um, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago now, and uh, he was just thrilled by the ethic. I said to him, what, what is it that attracts you to Christianity? He came to, be, to have his, his child baptized. He was the son of an elder in the PCA, and he said to me, it's the majestic ethic, he said. I love the… we live in a world of chaos and moral depravity, and I come to the church, and I have this ethic, these, this, this set of rules that give order and structure. Everything else is topsy-turvy. Everything else is out of order, and I come to the church, and it's outside the church. It's like people trying to draw a straight line without a ruler or a circle without a compass, and I come to the church, and the Word of God, the law, gives me a, a ruler to rule things by and a compass to measure my circles, and I just I love the ethic. And for others, it's, it's not the ethic of righteousness that attracts them to Christianity. It's the ethic of kindness. We live in a, in a, a terrible world that's torn apart by hate and malice and envy and jealousy and racism and, and um, where the, the, the haves seem to have it all and the have-nots have almost nothing. And they're segregated and marginalized and pushed to the limits of the town in the far side of the railroad tracks and kept at a safe distance. And they love the idea of, of, of a church where there's love and there's kindness. We reach out and we, we help the poor and we try to heal the wounds tearing a culture apart. Um, for others, it's the sense of, of um, timelessness. People come to the church, and they live in a world which is a throwaway culture of replaceable things. Everything's made of plastic, and it's cheesy and cheap and degrades and so forth and cracks and falls apart. And you come to the church, and you feel you're connected to a great bastion of history. It goes all the way back to the apostles. And you're something solid that was here before you were here and will be there after you're gone, right? It's you're part of the eternal, the great epic flow of the covenant, as 
Jim likes to say, and all of those things are true. All of those things are marvelous in one way or another. And all of those things Paul would have said when he was in the, in the Judaistic religion. You know, I, I, I find the same thing. I find the law, the ethic, in a world of moral, Gentile, pagan chaos, I find the law of God. And it gave sanity, moral sanity. And I find history that connected me to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the, the great nation of Israel that will be here after the petty Roman empires crumble to dust. And I find a community of people to fellowship with and connect with and to receive love from and give love to, and that took away the loneliness of the world. And so many today find the church as this place of community, which is wonderful and, and much needed. But as important as all those things are, as vital as all of those things are. You can't have Christianity without doctrine. You can't have Christianity without the ethic of love and kindness and righteousness. You can't have the church without community. You can't believe in these things without connecting to history. None of these things are central. In our text this morning, we come face to face with the great central reality of Christianity— and it's the person of Jesus Christ. And if He is not the center of your Christianity, then perhaps you have no Christianity at all. Without Him, Christianity is like the, the, the planets of our solar system without the sun to give them light and warmth and light and life. He's the sun. He's the substance. He's the energizing principle behind it all. Let's read together the Word of God. Paul says, beginning in verse 3, we are the circumcision. We're the true Israel who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to put confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Remember, Paul here is saying, if you could flesh your way to God, I would be the greatest example. If anybody could flesh their way to God, it was me. If there was an Olympic sport of working your way, earning a place on the ladder of human merit in the presence of God, Paul says, I was that man. He's not saying, I thought I was that man. He said, I would be that man. If that were possible, it's me, he said. And yet, he said, and he goes on to describe why his pedigree and his performance, you think you've got reason to boast, I have more, Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. People could look at me and find no fault. I could look at the Pharisees and say, which of you convinces me of sin? And there was crickets. But he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. There was a time when Paul thought of Christianity or religion, Judaism, sorry, as simply a matter of the things he brought to the table that gave him standing before God, that made him not nothing. His pedigree, his performance, his religious life, his piety, they gave him, he thought, some standing before God. And then came that moment on the Damascus Road when he met Jesus Christ, and everything changed. All of the things he thought that put him on the ladder of human merit not only knocked him off that ladder, but actually smashed him down below the bottom. It wasn't just that these were nothing. They were less than nothing. They were worse. They were splendid sins that disqualified him from the presence of God. They gave him no qualification, quite the worst. I was walking to the airport last night, chewing some chewing gum, as you do when you've been drinking coffee all day, and you want to spare your traveling partner, an unknown traveling partner, sitting beside me in the airplane. So I'm chewing chewing gum, as you do, and it was minty and fresh and somewhat pleasant. But I took it out and threw it into the trash can. And as I did, I watched it kind of arc across at 10.30 into the trash can. And the moment it touched the trash can, I suddenly thought everything changed. I was quite happy to be chewing it two seconds before, but the moment it touched the trash, I didn't want to touch it again, and I certainly didn't want to chew it again. Blah. And for Paul, all of his merit, all of his good works, and he's, he's setting himself here as the best example of human zeal in religious activity. He said, the moment it touched, not the trash, but the moment it touched the treasure of Christ, it became a heap of stinking garbage. The word he uses, skibala in Greek, is, is dung, it's manure, and rotting fish. It's a crude word. And if that's the best you can be without Christ, is dung. Then you're in a bad spot if you've not got Christ. And so Paul starts to riff on the subject of Christ and what Christ brings to him, why Christ is the sum and the center of everything in his life. Everything else is less than nothing and worthless. Christ is all. Christ is everything. And he says three things. We may only get to the second of the three things, but we'll see. The first thing he says is, what, what do I get in Christ? He says, I, I, I find a person to trust. A person to trust. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, every possible thing I could depend upon to give me standing before God. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of simply knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Christ, 
what Johnny Cash sang about, Paul discovered his own personal Jesus. Or what Luther said, the key to religion, true religion, saving religion, is the personal pronouns. God isn't just a rock, a shepherd, a savior, a righteousness. He's my rock, and He's my savior, and He's my righteousness, and He's my hope, and He's my everything. Can you say that this morning about Jesus Christ? There's no more important question in all the world. If you can't say He's everything, then you have, and you are not just nothing, but less than nothing. Erasmus put it well, the famous um, Christian humanist in Luther's age. The Bible, he says, will give, you, will give Christ to you. In an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. Seeing Christ in the flesh would make him less visible compared to the glories that you, you read about him in the Word of God. Or Sundar Singh, who was a, a Hindu holy man, and Packer speaks about him, or John Stott, sorry, in his book, The Incomparable Christ. And Sundar Singh was this guy in, the, in India, and when he was 15, he, he was a trained to be a Hindu priest, and he, would, he burned copies of the Scriptures publicly. And a few days after he burned one of the Gospels publicly, um, he was converted. He had, he had a vision of Christ. Now, how that happened, I don't understand. I know a man at seminary that I went with to seminary who had a vision of Christ. He was an Indian um, Hindu um, priest, and one night in his room, uh, he Christ appeared in the heavens above his room with such glory and brightness that he could see through his ceiling and see Christ in the heavens. And my friend fell on his face beside one of his friends, who actually was a Christian who had been witnessing to him, and he looked across at his friend on the ground, on his face, but worshiping Jesus. And the Hindu friend of mine, who later became a seminarian, was terrified. And Jesus he heard Jesus say to him, why is your friend worshiping me and you're cowering in the dust? And he woke up, if he was asleep, and he turned and began reading the Scriptures, and God revealed Christ to him in the Word, and he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. I can't explain how that happened, but it happened to him. And um, J. Muda, my friend, it happened to this man in the 19th century, 1889. And later, Sundar Singh, as he came to Christ, he is preaching through India, and he comes to a Hindu college and was accosted, the Aristotle says, by a lecturer who was quite aggressive and asked him what he had found in Christianity that he did not have in his old religion. And Sundar Singh said, I have Christ. And the man said, yes, I know that. But he said, what particular principle, what doctrine have you found that you did not have before? And Sundar Singh said, the particular doctrine, the particular principle, the particular thing that I did not have before but I find in Christianity was Christ. And that's the central thing about the gospel. The gospel, I am not asking you to trust a doctrine this morning. I'm not asking you to trust an idea. 
that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is an act of God's free grace, whereby he freely pardoneth all your sins and receiveth you as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. That's all true. It's a summary of the gospel, but I'm not asking you to trust a doctrine. I'm asking you to trust a person, Jesus Christ, the person of God's Son. Ideas are important. Doctrines are important. There's no Christianity without its doctrines. The doctrines of our religion are the facts of our religion, but we don't trust them. We trust Him. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Carrie was playing it, a beautiful song by City of Light called Jesus, Strong and Kind. Jesus said, if I thirst, I should come not to the gospel. I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to my systematic theology textbooks. No, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. He showed me that on the cross. He will come to me. It's a simple song. It's a children's song. But sometimes it's the simple songs that are the deepest and warmest One of the great theologians in the past was asked once, what is the greatest thought you ever had? He said, at a news conference, the greatest thought I ever had. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's the gospel. And we are saved, Christian, because we trust him. Are you trusting him? It's so easy, even as Christians, even as a minister, I was thinking this morning about that, (coughs) we can so often fall into the trap of beginning by grace. We get into the gospel by grace, by Jesus, and then we stay in by works. And it's why we are such a miserable bunch with so little joy, because we think… I've been saved, but I've got to make my calling and election sure. I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I've got to put sin to death. And if I don't, I'll die. And we're we're wrestling and trying to find assurance of salvation by doing all the things the gospel commands us to do. We must work out our salvation. We must make our calling and election sure. We must put sin to death. All that's true, right? But none of that's why you're saved. You're not saved yesterday by doing those things. You're not saved today by doing those things. You'll not be saved tomorrow by doing those things. You are saved simply and only by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you trust anything else, if you put the weight of your soul anywhere else in order to find comfort and confidence that your sorry hiney will make it all the way home to glory, you're putting your weight, your feet on, on shaky ground that will let you down. Think about it. Sometimes you'll see, you know, these kind of Chinese tourists. They're 
strange, but they'll go on these paths on the cliffs like that are about as thick as this step, right? And there's like like 6,000 feet down, straight. And they're kind of walking along, holding on to a wire. Now, you're doing that, right? And there's maybe you, you, you've got your four-year-old with you. What do you do? You say, here, son, hold my finger. You don't do that. Because he's a four-year-old. He's got the attention span of a, of a squirrel on Ritalin, right? And so you're not going to let him hold your finger. He might let go and fall. What comfort is he's holding my finger? It's okay. Your wife's going, hold. no, he's holding me. It's okay. He's holding my finger. You'd never do that. And you're a sinner, and you're also stupid. And you wouldn't do that. God's not going to give you the finger of Christ to hold on to here. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's how you know you're going to get to heaven. No, what do you do? You take your meaty fist and you encapsulate that little toddler's hand and you squeeze it. Now, he might be holding on to something in the midst of your hand, but your comfort is not the fact he's holding on to you, but that you are holding on to him. And there's a, there's a gladness that comes over the soul when you realize that Christ has got me. I have a person to trust, and it's not what I do for him. It's not me holding on to him, even though he commands me to do certain things. My only confidence in time and in eternity, in life and in death, is that Jesus Christ loves me and gave himself up for me, and he is holding on to me, and I'm trusting him. And if he lets me down, I am lost, because there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation, to make up any gap. If, if this is Christ, and this is me, and there's, a, and there's a tiny gap between what he can do and what I must do, I am lost. I can't do it. Without me, you can do nothing, Christ says. He is everything, or you have less than nothing. And Paul says, Christ is my center because in him I find a person to trust. I can trust him. I know him. Can you say that? It's the essence of Christianity. And you can know all the doctrine, all the reform theology, all the nitty-gritties of Burkhoff and Bavink and everything else, but if you don't know that, you don't know deadly squat when it comes to getting to heaven. It's Christ first and Christ last and everything in between, Christ And there are lots of people in hell who are better theologians than I because they put the weight of their soul somewhere else and didn't have less of the gospel. They had none of it because of it. That's the first thing. A person to trust. And secondly, we have a place to rest. And be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the kind of righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is a, a nitty-gritty verse. Let me try to explain it to you. Paul here is contrasting two different types of righteousness. A righteousness of my own and a righteousness from God. Right? What's he mean? Well, the righteousness from, of my own is a righteousness that I am responsible for generating. And I do that by keeping the law, by doing the things God says I must do in 
the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of the Christian religion. I do these things, and then I generate a righteousness of my own making. Now, listen, Paul says, I am not interested in any of that. I don't have a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, a righteousness of God's generating and of God's gift, a righteousness that depends on faith. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult phrase, right? Because it can, it can sound, and some theologians read it that way, good men like Richard Baxter read it that way, that God kind of has lowered the bar, that no longer do you have to actually obey the law to be righteous. All God requires of you is faith. And if you have faith, that's all you need, and now you're righteous. And that's a perversion of the gospel. Why? Because if faith is the essential link, if faith becomes the reason you can have hope, you are trusting something that you are responsible for doing. And therefore, it's not, you know, if you have an anchor holding a ship, um, I don't, you know, a great aircraft carrier, who knows how many million pounds or tons, whatever, and there's this huge anchor, and the, 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 the links of the anchor are iron, and they're as thick as a man's waist, right? And they, there's hundreds of them, but the last one is a paper link in the water. What use is that? The link will dissolve and go, and the, the big anchor will, will be left on the bottom of the ocean, and the ship will be, shift, will be, will be drifting out to sea. And if, if you're saved, Christian, because of this great anchor of Christ, and yet the weakest link is something you bring, your faith, and your faith is that, that great link that connects the anchor to Christ and your soul, then your salvation isn't worth anything. And you'll always be left with doubt. If faith is something I must do, I must bring to the table in order to get Christ, then have I done it well enough? Have I believed well enough? And you'll always be worried, is my faith enough to connect me to Christ, to hold on to Christ? Now, when Paul here speaks of faith, He's not speaking something that brings to the table. When he says the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that's maybe a bad translation. He's, he's, he's contrasting a righteousness that, that depends upon full hands that bring all of the works we have done to the table and say, look, God, accept me because of these, because I fast, because I do family worship, because I keep the Sabbath day, because I do all these things, right? Accept me because of these a righteousness that depends upon my full hands of my works, and a very different type of righteousness that depends upon empty hands that give nothing to God in terms of human work or human worthiness, but they're empty hands, they're dirty hands that receive everything from God. It's not that we give faith to God like putting 10 cents into a, a vending machine in the airport and getting your chocolate bar out. I didn't do that. I'm on a diet. But still, you know, People think of faith that way. Put your, your ten cents of faith in and you get all of the riches of Christ. No. 
Faith gives nothing to God. It receives everything from God. It's that phrase, all you need is nothing. Yet nothing is the one thing most men don't have. They want to bring something to God of their own, their own repentance, their own works, or their own faith. Look, God, I'm trusting you, and therefore you should receive me. That's not the gospel. There's no resting in faith. Paul doesn't say, I want to be found in faith. No, I want to be found, he says, in Him. In Him. A place to rest, do you see? In Him. Resting in Him. In union with Him. Like those two water droplets that come together and become indistinguishable. We believe into Jesus. Not just we believe in Jesus, we believe into Him. We become one with Him. As our hand reaches out of the soul and touches Jesus by faith, we become one with Him, and all that He is becomes one with us. His perfect life, His righteousness, His life, His death become ours, and all of our sin becomes His legal responsibility, and there's union. And so Paul says, I center on Christ because He's a person to, to, to trust. And he's a place to rest, to lay down my doing. Though all the worries, have I done it well enough? Have I done it often enough? Have I done it earnestly enough? And I don't trust what I do. I, I rest simply in what he has done. And that's the great difference between Christianity and every pagan religion. Every pagan religion begins with a do. This is what you must do. And then if you do it well enough, often enough, and long enough, maybe God will forgive you your sins. And Christianity begins not with do, it begins with a triumphant, climactic, done, finished. And we rest in that. And even though the gospel calls us to action, we don't trust any of that action. Because it's never done well enough if it's done by me. And I'm a professional in religion, so if I can't do it well enough, what hope for you, right, minions? Um, and speak, speak as one in saying, right? No, we don't trust in anything we do, even though God calls us to do. We just simply trust and rest in Christ, a person to trust. If He saves me, unless He saves me, I'm lost. And once He saves me, the worst I can be is safe and a place to rest. It's not like whenever Benjamin Franklin walked out of the, Con the Continental Congress and said to one of his friends, and they said, what have you done? He said, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Christ is not saying, I've given you salvation. If you can keep it, <laughs> that's not a good other be like, oh, I'm, 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 well, I'm, I'm lost then, I'm finished. No, I've given you salvation, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. First, and beginning, Alpha, Omega, and everything in between, it's all Christ. So he's a person to trust, a place to rest. And thirdly, Paul says, I want an Easter weekend to experience. That's the best I could do. I apologize. Um, an Easter weekend to experience. Verse 10, that I may know him and the 
power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The first thing Paul says I want you to experience, I need to experience, is Easter Sunday, the resurrection. It's, it's, it's um, the life of God. You know, someone's had a heart attack, there's no electrical energy in their heart, and they're lying in the ground, and you put the defibrillator paddles on them, and you zap them, and it kickstarts their heart into life again. Well, you and I are spiritual corpses, dead. And the first thing that must happen before, if we're to be saved is not believe. It's not that Jesus was standing at Lazarus's tomb saying, okay, Lazarus, move your twinkie, move your pinky finger, go on, just move your pinky finger, and then I'll come and save you. If you believe hard enough, Lazarus, you can move your pinky finger. Just, just move the pinky finger, just a little bit. And people would have said, he's really lost his marbles this time. Lazarus is dead, like dead. And it was only when Christ said, Lazarus, come forth, that he came forth. And by nature, the Bible says, you and I are dead, D-E-A-D, in sin. And we can't move our pinky finger. We can't even look. We're dead, right? Our soul is dead. Dead people don't think. Dead people don't look. Dead people don't talk. Dead people don't trust. We're dead. And the first thing that must happen is new life. That's why Christ said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, and you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if people say, we believe first, then we're born again, well, how, that doesn't make sense. How do dead people believe? And, and if you can't see the kingdom of heaven, how are you supposed to believe in it? You can't enter it. You're dead. New birth. And, that's what, and, and, and how the new birth happens is not through defibrillator paddles. It's through God connecting the power of Easter into dead souls. It's what Peter described in 1 Peter 1, 3 and following, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we finally made ourselves worthy by believing in the gospel, no, who according to his abundant mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all of God. Now, just like when you put the zapper paddle on someone's chest and press the button and they jerk, when God zaps a soul with new life, the first thing that happens, it goes, hold on a second, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. Jesus, He's a Savior, ha! Ah! And they run to Him, and they put their trust in Him. And they might not be aware of the zap, but the only reason they're suddenly alive and breathing faith and repentance is because God has done something to them first according to His abundant mercy. And Paul says that is the energy source of the Christian life, and without that, we are like the dwarf trying to make Thor's hammer in End of Davalier, whatever you call that place. The neutron star was dead, remember, and it's dead and dark, and there's no power, there's no energy. We need the sun to be alive for us to be alive. And in the new birth, the life of God's Son invades our heart and gives life, and that gives power for everything else in the Christian life. And Paul says, Christ's a person to know, and he's a, 
He's a, a place to rest. He's also a power to experience. Maybe that's better. But that power is Easter morning power. As he comes in and gives me life. The power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What's that mean? Well, that's, that's, that's going backwards from Easter Sunday to Good Friday. That when Christ died to sin on the cross and died for sin, he didn't just die alone. He died in union with his people. If you don't believe me, look back a couple of scriptures quickly. First, and we need to finish this, but Galatians 2.19. Paul says, or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? That because of our union with Christ, when Christ died on the cross, he didn't just die alone. In a, in a mysterious sense, we died in him. It was almost as if if, if I can say this reverently, God opens up his Find My Friends app on Calvary and says, where are my people? And all of our GPS signals are inside of Christ. And as he dies on the cross, the power of his death touches us. And what happens is when that actually and it's stored up, so the power of His life breaks into our hearts and brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life the moment we're born again. And then as we live by faith in Christ and look to the cross, His death actually kills more and more the old man inside of us who was once enslaved to sin. So that Paul says in Romans 6, I am now dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And sin is no longer my master, that when Christ died, I, the old Neil died with him. And a new person came into existence inside me who is really Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. And all of the mystery of the gospel is found in those words, but it's Easter Sunday and Good Friday, the power of Christ to bring life to my soul and death to my sin. And essentially, right, the Christian life battling sin is really reminding yourself you're no longer the slave of sin. Like, and there's a story after the Civil War when this African-American slave, former slave was walking down the street in, I don't know, Vicksburg or somewhere, and his old master saw him and went, Sambo! And Sambo turned around and he began following. Master, he began following him. And then suddenly he realized, hold on a second, I'm no longer his slave. He's no longer my master. And went, goodbye. And he walked off. And that's exactly what happens in the gospel. When I go back to Ireland, to my home country in Ireland with my American passport, when I, when I walk up to the, to the desk, even though I've got a Northern Ireland accent and a Northern Ireland birth certificate, I stand in 
the line of foreigners who don't have an Irish passport anymore. And I've got to remind myself, and the guy looks at me strange. You, I'm an American now. Um, but it's, and it's a bit like that. As Christians, we no longer belong to the devil. We no longer are enslaved to sin. We have the power to say no. Not because we have the power to say no, but because we know Christ. And in Him, we have a, a person to trust and a place to rest and a power to live and a power to die, a power to live to God and a power to die to sin. And that is the gospel. And it's very different from Alcoholics Anonymous trying to white-knuckle your way to holiness or to saying no to your old um, poison, like some person doing a plank and trying to hold on as long as they can by their own grit and gumption. No, in the Christian faith, it's, it, I can do nothing. I need Him to be a power of new life and a power of to die to sin, to live to God. And all of that comes as I experience the cross, Easter. And for Christ is everything. And without Him, I don't just have something. I have nothing. And I don't even have that. I have less than nothing. That's, that's Poe. When you can't afford the O and the R, you're Poe, right? And you're so, you're so helpless. Without Christ, you haven't even got nothing. You can't even afford the O or the R or the P or the O. You've got nothing. But in Christ, we have everything. And that's the gospel. And that's why Christ is the sum and substance of Christianity. And while I have breath in my body as much as I love the Reformed faith, and through that Reformed faith, I understand Christ, but I'll never love the Reformed faith more than I love my Savior. He is everything. Is He everything for you? Do you know Jesus strong and kind? Have you learned to rest in Him, to lay your deadly doing down and simply trust Jesus? Until you've taken that step, you haven't taken the first step of becoming a Christian. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus who's willing to touch sinners and to forgive us, cleanse us, but to do everything necessary for our redemption, to die in our place and to rise again, and through his death and life to give us the power to die to sin and to live to God. And we pray this morning for each member of our church that we will find in Jesus a person to trust. Because if he lets us down, we are lost and a place to rest, just to stop trying to get off the rat race, trying to earn our salvation, and a power to experience, the power of death, the power of life, to die to sin and live to God. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.